Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you get a chance, please call my office line, 818-907-0036. Again, 818-907-0036. And record your voice for the call-in show. If you have a statement you want to make about something that you learned when you were making a transition out of a painful or controlling experience and into the light of day or freedom, or what kept you involved in a controlled situation for so long or the challenges that you've had since leaving, and it can also be a question that you pose of me about what might help when you're leaving a community, what might help when you're leaving a relationship, how to get back on your feet, something where you then can participate in the show. I can respond to your statement or answer your question. You can uh, inform people, inform listeners of your name or not. You can just leave it anonymously. Either is fine. And they will be included in the show, which will be in a few weeks. So again, call 818-907-0036 and leave a statement about transitioning out, finding freedom, taking your first steps, what the challenges were, advice you got that was great, advice you got that was awful and to stay away from. And also, if you do have questions for me and you'd like me to answer them on the show, I look forward to hearing from you. And now for today. Today, we have part one of my conversation with Todd Brown. He was in a kind of an independent Sufi community in Illinois called Daimi Tarikat for 23 years. He worked as a baker at their Sufi-owned business during that time. Since leaving the group in March of this year, he has come out again as a gay man and returned to school to complete a graduate degree in counseling. He hopes to earn a PhD and help people leave coercive environments. And that all sounds wonderful to me. You will hear part one of my conversation with him today and part two next week. Here's Todd Brown. Well, I am so excited to have Todd Brown on the show today. I reached out to you because I had heard a little bit about your story and read a little bit from you, actually, about your story. Just a little bit that you had posted here and there because we have a lot of people who we know in common. So we got linked on social media. And I think that your story is so important also because it ties into so many issues that have affected people. And I think people don't know that these sorts of things happen and they don't have an insight or at least not as much as I would like them to have yet about the impact that these kinds of experiences have on people and how you get past it and you know just the things that would be good for us to try to cover today and so before uh before we officially get started if you don't mind just taking a few minutes and introducing yourself to the listeners so my name is Todd Brown and I live in Southern Illinois in a small town. And I moved here to be part of a Sufi group called Diami Tarikat. And um, 
when I was 29 and I'm now 52 and I left the group about three months ago at the right at the beginning of our quarantining time and uh I, I you've already had some introduction but I I am um, I was <laughs> in the middle of a PhD when I quit it and came to be part of this group and I think just I get I guess the spoiler would be that um, before I joined the group, I identified as gay. And in the course of the group, there were a lot of the dynamics in the group that, let me just say, we'll talk more in depth about this, but it led to some other choices. And then now that I've come back out of the group, I've reclaimed my identity as a gay man. And I have a lot to say about what that process feels like. And I, I'm only just out so i've heard a lot of people on the podcast talk with great distance about their uh healing and i'm right in the middle maybe not even in the middle maybe i'm just sort of dawning on the ptsd iceberg and healing it really intensely and learning new stuff and unpacking it so um, i'm looking forward to uh exploring it some more with you mm -hmm. Okay. Those are good places to start. That's a lot to draw from and a lot of different directions to go in. And I think just by way of comparison, I hope that you don't make a comparison. Uh, that there are a lot of people who wait to tell their story until they feel like they have a conceptualization of it. They have the words to use. They feel strong enough. And then there are others who say, you know what, I actually have this kind of intuitive sense that starting to talk it through and needing to put it into words bef before I've really processed it all is actually going to help me get a little farther along. So I think that there's a lot to be said for you just sharing what you're experiencing now when you talk about being on this PTSD iceberg. Before we go back in the timeline, I think just having a sense of what that feels like, uh, that actually people farther down the line don't remember. So I, I'm happy, and that's a good thing, right? Because I'm, I'm happy to be able to tell you that, that you're not going to fully remember it, but you are going to be able to now give us a bird's eye view into what that experience is like and how that impacts you. Can you tell us? Yes. I did some pretty public social media posting and a lot of people, there, there's a pretty big group of ex-members and um, it, it, I wrote this article on Medium and like 4,000 people read it. And it was very surprising to me that this happened. Wow. And part of it was ex-members, but also, you know, current members watching what I was posting like it and and also I'm in a small town and the Sufis as they're called are extremely well known this group that I was part of and so all these people were are hungry for this story it's like we'll want to know because there's this giant you know wall of mystery around this group mm -hmm. so I realized holy shit like people and 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 what I'm noticing is that this desire I have to tell the story is just who I am. Like, I just came out that way. So, like, I'm this kind of performer, writer, word guy, and I just operate like this. And, and there's been lots of people who have come out of the group who have just, like, 
felt alone and ashamed for years, literally. And so now what's happening is they're seeing what I'm posting and their, their stories are starting to bubble out. Like there's a lot of people who want to speak. And for some reason, I'm just wired that I'm the speaker guy. And it hasn't always gone well. In other words, me publishing that article was my immediate family was not ready for it. And I don't think I was either. So, uh, okay. so, so the, and, and also I'm still in the little town with that group. Thankfully I'm quarantined and haven't had, but I, I'm having to, as I say these words and as I speak it, I am aware in every moment that they are watching and spying on me. Mm-hmm. That the group will witness what I'm saying, that they are saying that they are villainizing me and uh you know first definitely minimizing but they're calling me mentally ill like so there's this and so so the immediate ptsd thing is like it's like i'm under this blanket (laughs) and part of and it's like i'm poking holes in it and i i'm posting things on facebook for for better or for worse or different places and I'm, i'm reaching out and i'm making connections like I'm already here on your podcast, which is something I just discovered six weeks ago. I sort of have a superpower resourceful thing where I just find people. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's uh, good. It's a good thing. Yeah. So, so yes, even though it's scary, really scary, I feel like for this person, saying the words out loud is really helping me feel real mm. um, because I didn't. I spent these 23 years and I didn't know it, but you know what I'm seeing, it's just like coming out of the matrix and realizing, Oh my God, like I didn't, I didn't know my thinking was distorted. I didn't know that I was dissociated. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just yesterday I spent three hours socially distanced out in my yard with an ex member. So all these people that I had villainized, it turns out that they're lovely and great people and they're helping a lot and we're having great conversations. And so it's, it's disorienting. So each day is sort of like depression, anxiety, what's happening. And, and the speaking it is sort of like me um, pulling on this rope or something that is mm-hmm. uh, helping me feel more here. Right. And I know that's not true for everybody, and I've seen it. These words speaking to you feel healing mm-hmm. <laughs> to me. Right. I, that it sounds like it's healing to be speaking the words, and it's healing just that you are speaking the words. Yes. And also that you are pushing through the fear, uh, uh, kind of the fog of the fear, because it really is this smoke and mirrors which is what you've seen by hanging out with the people who you had villainized to find that they're fine or great. And then to be able to know that while they're listening to this and villainizing you, that one hopes that eventually they're able to come out and have a conversation with you and realize that they were needing to believe this about you so that 
they didn't want to leave or they wouldn't take your information seriously about why you left. There are a lot of reasons. And I, so I'm, I'm wondering about villainizing other people. What were you taught to believe about other people who had left? There was a lot of mental illness talk. It's a powerful little group. And we had, I was part of this management team and every week we would meet with the guru and whenever somebody left it was first of all they were talked about as minimally as possible and then just erased because we would just sort of in our spiritual effort we wouldn't give any time to that person but at the same time over and over over the years you would hear we would hear you know denigrating stories about people but one of the last people who left it was it was like, oh, there's mental illness in his family or there's, and, and there's always the subtext of like, wow, can you believe they did that? Like it had a scoffing, belittling tone all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and then there was this, there's this weird undercurrent of somehow you hurt the guru by doing that in that way. So like there was somehow this standard of how, like, Part of the mind fuck of this group was that um, it always taught you that you were free to do this. It spoke that you were free to do as you wished. It spoke your free will. Mm-hmm. Like um, the party line was that, of course, you can, of course, you can not come to this program or of course you can like tell us what you think. Tell us, you know, but mm-hmm. then the reality was that you were belittled and yelled at and and um, so there was this idea that if you needed to leave, that just just tell us, like, you know, tell us during this program or like during the family meeting, just just speak to it. Like, why didn't you speak to it? Mm-hmm. But then it's mm-hmm. impossible to do so. Mm-hmm. And then so so when people leave, you know, 98 percent of the time they do it without communicating or without or just through an email. Mm-hmm. Or if they do try to have a conversation with the guru, they are massacred in private, which is never shown. So the party line would be, and I witnessed this for 23 years, it's like, wow, I can't believe, because I was known as Tarek. Why would Tarek, wow, like after everything you've done for him, you he would just send you an email? And so it's this, it's it's 100% dismissed. And part of what's powerful about telling the story is that we had we had practices and um, you know narratives that explicitly stated that your story didn't matter. Don't be attached to your story. Mm-hmm. So here I am telling the story. Mm-hmm. So this the very the very thing that that what I think and feel matters mm-hmm. is against the ethos of that culture. Right. So that's part of why it's so disorienting. Because I'm like, oh my god, like. I what I think and feel matters. Oh yeah. I'm I'm learning that this is a common experience. It's very common and I want to say what you think and feel not only matters but it matters most. Yes. And that's why I think in these groups they want to take away what matters most. Yes. And they want to take away what is going to be your uh ability to be grounded to take in the evidence of your senses, to understand what's happening, to put your words to it, to have your frame of reference. 
that's what matters most. And so they, I think you can tell a lot about what a group or a guru thinks is most powerful about a human being because of what they feel they have to take away. And so if they are threatened by you having your perspective yes, and you trying to put things together and make sense of them, then they're going to tell you to not be attached to your story. Yes. So it just proves how powerful it is and why you need to be able to feel that you have the right to have it back. I mean, it should never have been taken away, but it just shows how threatening it was to them. Yes. And I think for this person specifically, I was a great threat because as you can see now, I'm, I'm tuned in and I'm articulate and I, I am a very dangerous weapon. Just by you telling your story. Just by simply speaking the truth from what I've perceived and what I've observed. Right. Okay. And so he did everything that he could and I gave away that with full effort. I am a 100% person. So I, I fully engaged with all my ability, the willingness to get rid of my story. Right. And, and then we can come back to, if we have time, the idea of giving something away or having it taken away, but you being given the impression that you were willingly giving it away. I was, it was, it was a cloud of the whole thing is set up so that even though he sort of took spiritual responsibility, I'm holding quotation marks. Uh, oh, yeah, for the people um, just listening. Yeah. Yes, those are air quotes, important air quotes. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, at the same time, we are, the, the devotees are the, given 100% responsibility for what we do. So it's the mind trick that we f- are made to feel responsible. Okay. Oh, wow. There's so much that I want to talk to you about. Okay. So <laughs> this is when it gets frustrating because I want to have four conversations going at once. Uh, so, you know, going back to this idea that um, they say that, you know, you can do as you wish, uh, but if you do it the quote unquote wrong way, even though if you're told you can do as you wish, there shouldn't be a wrong way. But um, if you are then belittled or yelled at, or even worse for a nice person, that you've hurt the guru in some way. Yes, yes. That you've shown yourself to not be acting with conscience. I can't imagine something that would feel worse and that would be, that would be more successful in behavior modification than guilt induction for a nice person. Uh, and so... It, you know, in these groups, they didn't invent these things. They, I mean, you see them in, in life all the time. I was thinking actually the other day uh, that there's an old friend of mine, and then I want you to be able to talk a lot more, but there's an old friend of mine who I don't get together with so often because there's always guilt. You know, uh, first co- part of our time together is talking about uh, how there's this lament about how I'm not in contact more often and how she can't see me more often. And I don't want to talk about how we don't see each other often while we're seeing each other. And then if she makes something for me, when people pre COVID were getting together, she would, she liked to bake and she would make different things. And there are only so many things that you can eat in one sitting. And if you chose one thing over the other thing, 
it would be, oh, that's too bad. I worked, yes. I worked really hard on that, but you know, that's fine. You know, if you just wanted to have a piece of that, you know, maybe next time, you know, uh, so there was no way to feel free and it was not relaxed. And that's just in general society, kind of an annoying guilt inducing trait. So I can only imagine it turned up to 11, so to speak, yeah. um, where you then have to deal with it on a spiritual level. It, this is your community. This is your leader. And so, okay, I'm going to give it back to you. Among the many dynamics, there were, there were three wives. And what I realized is that they were sort of the model of full submission uh, in, in different flavors. And uh, just as, what, as an example of what you just described, like um, my wife had a little bit more, she had more willingness than I did to sort of not appear at our regular, we had a lot of events, gatherings. Okay. And um, she would hear, we would hear things like, she would hear things like, wow, I haven't seen you in a while. Mm-hmm. So like that, that is so loaded. Yeah. Oh yeah. About like, wow. And, and there's this tone of voice, which is like, wow, you know, like, oh, where have you, like, how, where have you been? Or we got a new house and it would be like, wow, I've never been to your house. Yeah. And, and, and the, and the, and, and there's so many layers of implication of just mm-hmm. like, of you're not doing it right. Because, mm-hmm. and there's, there's this sort of like effortless, intimate inner circle, which you were always led to believe that you could be part of if you did things in a certain way. The truth is, is that these sort of lighthearted statements were built on more violent occurrences. Oh. So in other words, there's a threat. There's a threat and a criticism and a judgment in there that, you know, when you when when I look back on the stories of in in the group of um how fear motivated me, fear mm-hmm. of avoiding being called out and fear of punishment. And of right, course, right. fear of exclusion and fear of because you know there were many many examples of like you know getting fired from that job, but getting um, you know punished the 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 guru you know absenting himself or punishing the group and uh, right right that just imbued everything. Yes, the exclusion that's huge. You know, this is your community; these are your people. The threat of shunning, the threat threat of being cast out. Uh, being on your own, being isolated is something that panics most people and is used uh, across the board in these groups. Uh, I'm wondering, before we go back, because I want, I want to be able to get kind of a chronology uh, so that your story, so, so that there's a sequence that we understand what led into what. Uh, and then I want to go back to some of the things that you're talking about. But can you clarify what you meant by violent occurrences? Well, let me just be clear. There was, there are many stories that have not come out yet by, by ex-members who have not spoken yet. So I expect, if I were to predict the future, I would expect that some of these things will come out in a public way, that it will take people's time. And I don't, most of the stories are not my own. So there are instances of physical abuse. There are instances of sexual abuse. There is a tremendous constant emotional and spiritual abuse okay and so so when i say violent i mean 
what this person means mm-hmm. because this person didn't experience uh, the sexual abuse. Although there is there is abuse around my sexuality, which is real. Right. So that right. So the emotional abuse around your sexuality, rather than sexual abuse, right, which is real. Okay. Yeah. And, it, and they're 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 not that far apart. It's like right, right. gender. I would call it gender-based abuse. First of all, there's, of course, a giant split. There's a shunning when people leave. Um, But there's also this wall of in your consciousness. And then coming coming out of it, now I I, suddenly, I'm like, oh, now I can hear you. That's so weird how a brain does that. Right. And so to tie that in with this idea of not hearing, but you're involved in a group, what were you taught to do when you were in the group and what are people potentially still taught now about not taking in anything that seems negative uh, or critical or contrary um, in conflict? It's just, it's just impossible. I think what I was saying was um, it's like you have this, you know, waterproof, windproof, stormproof vinyl covering on you, you know, and it just... In order to maintain that illusion, which is driven by fear and driven by an intense desire to be validated by the guru and to be somehow safe. And when when information comes at you that threatens that at all, it simply cannot come in. It's just not allowed to be. And, and I guess what I am learning is that the information is easy to push away. There's experiences, you know, there's traumatic experiences that land and store in your body mm-hmm. <laughs> that later you have to integrate. But mm-hmm. when stories come at you it, and that the, from X people or whatever, it's easy to just push them away because you don't have to see those people or interact with them. You just, you're just like, no, bye. It doesn't work. That didn't feel stressful. I just was like, no, that's not real. <laughs> oh my God. It's so intense to mm-hmm. to uh, mm-hmm. so intense to be able to see it now and go like shit like I I just could not and would not integrate that information because it threatened everything. It threatened everything. So right. So what was the cascade then? Because you were saying that it was fear that would stop you. So it threatened everything. If you had a realization or if you took something in, then what could happen? What was the domino effect? My experience in this group was a lot of shaming and being shamed, being yelled at, being, um, in order to be close, I endured a lot of verbal, emotional abuse. And and I I would be risking that if I stepped out of line. Mm. And also, you know, I guess fundamentally, there's also this thing of like, I had given him everything. Mm. I gave him, them, everything I had. If that got wobbly, mm-hmm. I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna be buried on our land, and I was gonna be work for us, for, work for the group forever. And I, I gave everything and my money and my career, and you know, and there were very few men, and I was somehow, you know, symbolic of a man who could hang with it, and you know, all of my gender, I was gonna save, you know, or I, I don't know, like I was, I had so yeah. much pressure on me that I, right. I don't know if I answered that. It was just pressure. Yeah. You're representing your gender. And so you have to uphold a certain kind of standard 
so that you're somebody who represents it well. And yeah, and you couldn't disappoint. I think also when you're talking about the things that you were called, do you feel comfortable sharing some of the things that you were called or no? Yeah, there's a there's a few. This is related to how my gayness was erased. But that was a it was a slow process, but it was it's just related to how everyone's story is erased, you know? Anyone's particular uh hobby or vision or skills all of it was to be discarded and that for me i had specific experiences related to that and and you know i i, I do want to say right now that i did i got married in the group and part of i want part of what i want to say this is slightly an aside is that my wife is extraordinary and is and we're together in this exit and and she is one of the things she said just yesterday is that she felt like she um was able to hold herself a little bit back and that but she always watched me give 100% and that part of I part of what she said just yesterday about staying with me was that she she knew that she loved me and she knew that she should hang in there with me and the truth is that if i didn't have her i might not be having this conversation she made space for for me mm-hmm. because she had her little resistance place which i didn't have yes yeah wow that's very impressive she is quite something so i want to honor her mm-hmm. that's really lovely i i i want to say that there's a few this was a constant feeling of like how he was guiding me in my in my choices, but also at the same time making me responsible for them. Like, you know, I entered in 1997, I entered the, I came to visit here, a friend of mine. And uh, this old friend is, is a, was my one of my old gay friends. So I was at first, like, I was not looking for a guru. Part of the weirdness of the story is that I, I'm, a, I'm a seminary graduate and I was always very anti-hierarchy. Like I went to a very, I went to a union seminary in New York City and we were, we were all like radical theologians and it was all about like co-creation and like, you know, my favorite writers were all the, these like radical feminist theologians and I was very uh, anti-hierarchy and I'll mm-hmm. get more into that. There's more mm-hmm. background there. But so suddenly I find myself in this position where I'm, visiting a guru and i did not have any particular desire to have a guru mm-hmm. but i walked into this room into this house and i was so vulnerable at that time in my life that i was really struck by how beautiful and clean and kind of upstanding and it felt beautiful it was beautiful mm-hmm. the place mm-hmm. and you know I, I was kind of freaked out by it but i was like well I'm like, these are Muslims. I mean, they, they got to be homophobic, right? You know, this is my presumption. But my friend there was kind of like expressing to me the love he felt there. So I trusted him. Mm-hmm. And um, nobody ever told me that I could not be gay in those words. Okay. So So there was an environment of unconditional love and its words, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But somehow, and I had been out since I was a teenager. 
So mm-hmm. I had, I had a strong identity as a gay person, mm-hmm. but I was also in that moment that I met the Sufis, I was in graduate school. I was stoned most days. I was in a really inappropriate relationship that was really messy. I was really unstable. I was shaky. When you're talking about a Sufi group, I know they're different yes. organizations. Can you define how this one might be different from others so we're not talking about all Sufis? Yes. I I want to I want to say that I do not have experience with the sort of Sufi order of the West. It's all been filtered through our Sufi group, which positioned itself as the most pure, of course. Uh-huh. Okay. So so it's it's an Islamic Sufi group and it it positions itself as pure Islam. So it positions itself as superior to mainstream Muslims uh, and the, the Sufi orders, which are sort of like dancey, blah, blah, blah. Believe me, it belittles all of those groups. Right, yeah, just by saying dancey, right? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a serious way of uh, being kind of in spiritual trance and it's been around for yes. a long time. Uh, but just, I can hear the way they were very reductionist in the way that yes. they looked at it and, and patronizing, uh, which doesn't make, in my mind, in retrospect, something seem very spiritual at all, if it's putting down everything else. Um, but go ahead. So finish up what you were saying, and then we'll start with your chronology. I'm sure this is common, but I used to say to people, I love this group because they didn't position themselves as superior. <laughs> And now that I'm out of it, I'm like, oh my God, we were completely superior <laughs> in every way to uh-huh. everybody. You know? Right. Mm-hmm. Oh Got my it. God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're we're not superior. We're just better than everybody else. Exactly. Right. We're just okay. trying harder or we're more committed or blah blah blah. We're the only true way, but right. yeah, but, but we don't like see that. We're not like those other groups that are like that. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the reasons that it's really good to talk about these things, because when yeah. you say it out loud, you think, hmm, OK, that's not coming together. But there is something about the aura of being involved in a group that makes you not aware of the logical inconsistencies, which I've always found very interesting. Yes. So tell me a little bit about, you know, growing up, leading into that moment that where you said you were vulnerable. What was going on for you? Okay, there's a chronology, but there's there's actually another piece, which is things happened to me that I don't remember. I was just a super empathic kid, academic family, the youngest, and I just was the kid who would, like, the stories that I remember, sort of like when my older sister cried, I would pop into her lap and cry. Like, oh. I just felt, I felt things. Mm-hmm. I was the feeler of things. And I always... You know, I just, I just was like that. So um, 10, 11, 12 years old, through a series of events, I sort of had to face the fact that I seemed to be attracted to men. And that was both, of course, it's the 80s and it was horrifying. And I, I, at the same time, I didn't keep the pretense up very long. Like I was, I wasn't like, I mean, you know, it's like 82 or something. I'm not going around in Indiana being like, I'm gay. But at the same time, I was like, somehow I didn't like the way boys treated girls. 
and I just refused to participate in it. <laughs> I was like, I don't like this. I'm not going to pretend I'm doing it. So I just quit. I, in my mind, I'm just like, I'm not going to pretend that I'm doing that. It makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> and it was not conscious, but I was, I was just aware. I'm like, people are being hurt. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> and um, I knew I did start coming out to my closest friends when I was like 17. And, you know, I had gathered people around me who were, by and large, very kind about it. Although, you know, there was a little bit of like, but I'm a Christian and you're going to hell, but very little of that. Like, okay. I, I had found my way into a pretty gentle group of people. That's nice. Yeah. And, and then when I went to college, I chose an environment that was as liberal as I could find intentionally. Okay. So I went to a little college called Grinnell and uh, it was just great. So I'm, it's like 1986 and I'm like, here I am, I'm gay and here we are and I'm growing my hair long and I'm talking about feminism and I'm like gender blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, however, there was this line of relationships that I had had that were the beginning of me piecing together that something wasn't right inside me. And what I mean by that was that like, I never was able to access just like, hey, you're a boy and you're my age and like, let's, let's date or like, let's have a relationship. I couldn't access these sort of what you might imagine right. an 18 year old college student could access. And what I mean is like, my, I had like a super intense obsession with like a coach of mine in high school, mm -hmm. which made me feel ashamed and confused mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. And then in college, it was like, I didn't, I was very avoidant of sexuality in general. Like, I mean, I could say that I was gay, but I was also like really tight and there was stuff going on. Okay. So right, right. And I ended up in a relationship with, what I would do is I was attracted to power. So like this a priest came to campus to uh, speak. And I ended up in a relationship with him. So I would kind of go after these powerful, inaccessible older people, right? And um, that was confusing. But as a 19-year-old, of course, I'm like justifying it as it's love or it's whatever. And right. if you're, you know, to my parents, it was kind of like, well, fuck you for not accepting me. Or like, you know, it was, it was edgy, you know? And, mm -hmm. and um, so I survived that, but I knew that I was mentally... I was not okay mentally, but I didn't, I didn't understand it, but I knew enough to know that like I, I was connected to counselors and I was, I was a reaching out kind of a person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that really mm -hmm. kind of saved me. So I, I ended up being a religion major, which was strange because my family is, you know, my family's religion was being a Democrat. It was nothing else. It was not, you know. <laughs> Like the worst thing that we do is being a Republican. Like it's academic, right? So I ended up in New York City at Union Seminary, hmm. mm -hmm. um, which is very exciting. And then those three years I was in New York, um, I, was, I had a very slow and very physical experience of coming to terms with the fact that something had happened to me as a kid and it was really 
in my body. Like it was, and it, it was this giant, scary, confusing thing that happened where um, my maternal grandfather was a, was a minister. And in my mind, I had remembered him as the person who loved me the most. So I had a memory of this person. Mm-hmm. Or I had a narrative, an idea of this person. And what started to happen in around 23 years old or so is that I remember sitting in my room and somehow I was coming into my body in a way that I hadn't before. And I felt like I had this demon in me. Sometimes I would scratch myself or I would, I felt my body and I, and in my mind, I realized I'm not okay. Yeah. And I would look at my behavior and I'd go like, something's not adding up. Like the way that I act and the way that I feel doesn't add up to something's wrong. So I realized that something was wrong. And there was a particular point, a moment where I realized, oh my God, something happened with my grandfather. And it was, and it it may, my memory may be foggy. It might've taken a couple of months, but there was a point where I went like, oh no, something, something happened. And there was something really amazing about that because it got me in my, like, I felt it in my body. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's that taught me a lot about trauma, about like, oh, wow, this is in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And your brain at a certain point can't override it. Mm-hmm. So just to finish this sort, of, this sort of little narrative is that I managed in the middle of this cracking up to finish my master's degree because what could possibly more be more important in the whole universe than succeeding at school? <laughs> so... <sighs> So I, I timed it so that I would finish my degree. And then and then I let myself, I, I remember letting myself break into pieces. I had some really good people around me. I don't even remember her name, but a, the pastor of Union Seminary came into my room and like looked at me and knew and, and said, I'm going to handle all these things that you're worried about. You fall apart. She let me do it. Oh. And I just I just remember going like, okay, I'm gonna just dissociate and I'm gonna let go of all the things I think I need to do. And I'm just going to and she called my parents and she said he needs to be inside somewhere. And I ended up at a fancy ass 30-day treatment center in Arizona. And then part of that, the big shock and the big validation of that whole experience was that my parents came out for the family week thing. I disclosed to them what had happened to me. And the next day in the group, my mother shared that he, that her father had abused her through her entire childhood. Oh, wow. I just got goosebumps. Yeah. Oh my God. So it was a horrifying moment for my family, but also very important that she, through my admission, she remembered that it had happened to her and she had not remembered. Mm. So part of the story of that, we re- like we realized, okay, our mom is completely dissociated in every way. And I was raised by, I was raised by an absolutely dissociated human being. <laughs> um, and I was the one, the youngest, forgive me my language for a second, the youngest fucking kid, the one who felt 
had to be the one to deliver this news to mm-hmm. my mother mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and to my family. It's like, yeah. Yeah. I was so hurt and so messed up. And, but for some reason, whatever divine gifts this person has, I was the one who felt it, communicated it and pushed it into existence. Yeah, it was quite something. It is quite something. And I and I'm I'm very sorry to hear that your mom had to endure that. And at the same time, it is it's extremely hard when you're the only, when you don't have that story validated, when you yes. don't have it believed, because well, he didn't do that with anybody else. So why would he have just done that with you? Yes. So there's something uh, very grounding. Uh, and to, to know not only that, uh, there is support proof that it did happen to you, but that you were giving your mom an opportunity to address her issues and hopefully start to heal from them. Um, I mean, what an, what an amazing watershed moment. Yes. Now being so much older as I realized that sexual abuse is so horrifying that I still couldn't and mostly can't integrate it as real because like I still I still don't have visual memories so like I I still go like was that real and then I so even though my mother was there saying like yes this is real and uh yeah yeah. the reality of it is so I get that this I get how people maybe never get over it. I get that people kill themselves. I get that. I get it. Mm-hmm. It's like, even now, it is very hard for that, to, for my brain to really accept that. I want to say that for a lot of people, when they start to feel that something is wrong internally, like you were feeling there were demons, I mean, the feeling possessed that something evil had happened to you or entered you. So there are a lot of people who will suddenly have that feeling where something feels quite out of control and it doesn't match what they think should be true about how they feel about themselves and the the life that they have. And so something is really off. It doesn't come together. You know, that can mean a lot of different things. But what is also true is that sometimes it does mean that something happened that you are now feeling in your body before you have a realization of it in your mind, which can happen very often. And also childhood is remembered in fits and starts. And there are pieces that are always going to be missing. Uh, There are very few people on this planet who remember everything. In fact, they're talked about and written about in articles because they're so rare. And so you are not going to remember it all. And especially if there's something happening that at the time was overwhelming or felt wrong or felt strange, you know, we find a way to have our mind go somewhere else. And so those become sometimes the memories that are, uh, that sort of come in little bits and pieces. And we have to put the puzzle together because we were dissociating during some parts of it. So it makes sense that you don't remember it all, you know, absolutely clearly as though you watched the movie, but you could tell something was wrong. I knew it. And it was validated, right? And it was validated, right. And also, let me just say, 
about this this woman, this what was her position again? The one who let you just she was the chaplain of Union Seminary. Okay. She walked into my room, she held the space, she took everything off of me that was holding me in the world of like, yeah, but what about this? And like my job and my my brain was and she said, let it go. And she held it and she got him a phone and it was amazing. Okay. Well, let's honor her too, because yes. that is an amazing thing to do for someone to just sort of uh, say, here, I got you. Just, just be. Just and be. I believe you. She walked in and she goes, I believe you. Mm-hmm. She didn't say those words, but that's how it felt. That's yeah. That's what she conveyed. It's beautiful. Yes. It's a beautiful thing. Very, really beautiful. Uh, very intuitive and kind yes. and necessary for you to be able to let go so that you could heal. One more thing before you go. First, I'd like to make sure to clarify something that is pertinent for this show and all other shows. While I'm talking about a particular group that is known from start to finish as a cult, then we don't need really to do a disclaimer. But with Todd and his group, it's important to make a distinction. We are not talking about Sufism in general. It's a form of mysticism that has been around for quite some time. But just like with all traditions, they can be perverted and capitalized on and used for people's gain. And people can think that they're getting involved in the actual tradition, in the mainline tradition, but are only getting involved in kind of a fringe organization where those kinds of organizations don't even recognize each other as the same tradition. And his group was run in a very different way and was very intentional and was crafted solely by the person who had designed it. I don't want people's experiences within offshoots or groups to portray an entire organization in a bad light. That's never my intention. So it is also never my guest's intention. And so unless the group itself, again, has never been part of a mainline group and has been a cult from start to finish, then know that we're talking about parts of groups, parts of organizations that are problematic that you need to watch out for. And when you do your research, find out if they are accepted by the mainline organization itself. So now I would like to expand upon something that Todd mentioned. He said that within the group, they were made to feel that they had permission to do what they wanted to do and make their own decisions. But as expected, If you made a decision on your own, there was almost no way for the leader to let you get away with it or for the leader to tell you you made the right one or give you an opportunity to gain a certain amount of confidence in yourself by having made a decision on your own, which was the right one. That's far too risky for leaders who have a very fragile ego to give people opportunities that are genuine and that can foster their independent thinking and their ability to have faith in their own decision-making power. Cult leaders don't like it, so many cult leaders and controlling partners will find very clever ways to either convince the ones they're controlling or at least repeat over and over to the ones they are controlling that they are there of their own free will and are deciding to stay. And they will often say this is not a cult and this is not an abusive or controlling relationship. 
and that I'm not holding you against your will. But as we know with statements that are repeated, it doesn't matter how often they are said. It still doesn't make them true. People within groups will often be told, you can go at any time. We can't stop you. We have no intention of stopping you. And in those situations, people on the outside hearing this will wonder, well, if you've been given the choice to go or to stay, then why do you seem to, quote unquote, choose to stay? And usually the reason is that the decision you have been given is not an actual decision. It is not a free and ultimately safe choice. It's what we call in this field a false dilemma. You're backed into a corner. It's kind of what I call decision deception. It's a term that I came up with to try to understand this very pivotal piece about why people, quote unquote, choose to stay. And after they get out, they talk about not really ever feeling that they had the opportunity and the freedom to make that choice at all or really any choices on their own without fear of punishment or shame. Decision deception is when you're told you can leave at any time, but the leader will say, I will always be with you in your head, so you will never be away from me. Or you can leave at any time, but something bad will happen to you, as evidenced by the many examples I'm about to give you, even though they're false, that's in parentheses, about all the horrible things that befall those who have left, so you get the message, it's safer to stay. Or that it's your only safe option, even if you're miserable there. In a controlling relationship, you're told that you can leave at any time, but then you will never find anyone who will put up with you the way I put up with you, or no one who will love you the way I loved you. Or in a cult group, you can leave at any time, they might tell you, but you will be leaving the only true path towards health or a connection to God. So going back to this idea, that's not just about leaving or staying, but just making choices within the group under that kind of false offer of free will. You can make any decision you want, you're told. But, and this is in the very small print, as soon as you do, I, the leader, will also not be able to tolerate you showing any independence and being right about anything that I didn't orchestrate and will make sure to use you as an example of willfulness because you did something without my permission. And if it doesn't go well, well, this is what happens to people who go ahead and make their own decisions and choose to do so out of pride. And then, if that doesn't work, then your guilt is tapped into. You can decide to abandon all this if you want, but the world is relying on you. We haven't completed our mission. Or you can go at any time and leave this multi-level marketing business, but all the people under you who are relying upon you for their own success and their own riches will never be able to achieve it. If you leave, why would you abandon them? Or it would be an absolute crime for you to leave now when you've worked so hard and spent so much time and money and success is right around the corner. Everything you were promised is about to come to fruition. So when someone who is controlling you says you're free to make decisions on your own, I'm not stopping you, please know it's a trap. This is the unspoken part again in the very fine print. You will be made an example, a laughingstock, someone shameful, someone who will be ostracized, 
someone who will be punished or kept from moving up the ranks, someone who will then be kept on a much tighter leash, someone who will have to go and be in isolation because everyone will have to move away from having a connection with you in order to teach you your lesson or to protect themselves from your willfulness and evil inclinations. When people are asked by their family and friends if they're being held against their will, they will very often say no when the answer is yes, because that is what they're told. That is what they are told, and also that's what they're told to say. It's not reflective of the emotional and behavioral level of manipulation they are enduring. They're just parroting what the leader or their controlling partner has been saying and has been telling them again to say. So if you sense they have been robbed of the freedom they are telling you they still have, take the conversation further. You can acknowledge that it really helps and you feel a lot better knowing that they can come and go if they wish and as they wish. And then ask, so have there been people who have left and what's happened to them? You'll know that they've been told horrible things about things that have happened to people who have left, and they haven't been able to verify if they're true or not because they've been barred from talking to these people who have left, so they have no way of confirming if these stories have any veracity. And if they talk about all of the horrible things that have happened to people who have left, then I think you can say, so does that make you worried about leaving? I'm wondering about you talking to the people who have left or the people who were previously with the person you are with now. Do you think maybe there's a reason you're not supposed to talk to them that might be different than the reason you're being given? That maybe it's not for your benefit or your protection, but maybe it's so you don't find out what happened and why they left? I could be wrong about this, but it's something to think about. And like I've said before, when you ask a question like that, they don't need to answer it. In fact, it's better if they don't because they're just going to give you a canned response. And instead, you want to just leave them with the question so that it can stay in their mind and hopefully percolate. And also know that it's very diagnostic and suspicious if you find out that someone is involved in a group or in a controlling relationship and they offer you information that you didn't ask for right away. So, if you didn't ask if they could leave at any time, or if they had the freedom to come and go, but they provide you with that info right away, then you know that it is a rehearsed presentation, and they're mimicking what their controller has told them to say. For example, if you ask, so, are you still involved with that group I heard about? And they say, yes, I'm involved with that group, and I can leave at any time, and it's not a cult. Well, please make a note of that. Don't say that you find it suspicious that they just said that, because that will shut them down. Just know what it proves. Just know that it proves the true nature of the group and how they're being taught to hide it. Or the true nature is even being hidden from them as members or partners. And now you have information, you have evidence that you didn't have before, and that will help you craft your next moves if an intervention might be necessary. It's like someone complimenting someone on their new shoes and the other person says, thanks, I didn't steal them. They were uh, a gift. Okay. So those are red flags, of course. Store them away and remember them. 
These are what investigators call tells, and sometimes they're not so subtle. They tell you that something is awry. Remember these moments that made you wonder, that made you question why your loved one ventured that information when it wasn't asked for. And if needed, write down the things that they said. Because after a few of these conversations, you'll have what is called a diagnostic picture. And then you'll be able to derive the clarity you need to see maybe if it's time to intervene. And if and when you do intervene and your loved one says, but I never told you I was being held against my will. I never told you anything was wrong. How did you know I didn't really have freedom? You can say, because you actually did tell me. You told me in so many ways, and I listened. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's Radio Public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.